Well, let's just review since we took a break last week. Uh, thank you to Steve for filling in. I appreciate that. Um, but let's, let's just review where we're at in Matthew. Uh, Matthew's built around these five discourses, right? These five main er- areas where Jesus is teaching. So we've got the Sermon on the Mount, what is kingdom righteousness? Matthew 10 was all, uh, all about the se- last one we looked at, Matthew 10, the second discourse, was all about Jesus sending his disciples, his apostles, to Israel and then by extension to the world to proclaim the message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. And then surrounding all of these discourses is, is narrative, right? The story. So we started with the story of identifying Jesus, even, even as a youth, even as a baby, about being the chosen Davidic king, the ultimate one who will rule over all the nations from a throne in Jerusalem. And Jesus started his ministry right where John the Baptist left off, proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. And then he showed by his teaching and by his miracles, his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and then his miracles in chapters 8 through 9, his authority, his authority as king, verifying that he is the king, the ultimate Davidic king that was chosen, that was prophesied. Then he sends out his disciples, chapter 10. And in chapters 11 through 12, this narrative before we get to the next big discourse, which is chapter 13 with the parables, uh, we see a turning point. We see the plot advance in Matthew. There's a turning point because up till now, there's been a little bit of resistance to Jesus. But now, as we've seen already in Matthew 11, Matthew 12, there's, there's a big turning point happening. See, Jesus has given enough proofs of who he is. He's justified it by so many miracles. And remember what, uh, what Jesus did in Matthew 11? He denounced uh, his home territory in Galilee. He denounced the towns where he did all these mighty miracles because they did not repent. He denounced them. It's not fully, the door isn't fully closed yet. He calls them at the end of chapter 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's calling to the nation of Israel primarily, first and foremost, and then by extension to everyone, that if you want to escape Israel from exile, if you want to escape world from exile, exile due to sin, you've got to come to me. You've got to repent. You've got to, jo- you've got to join with me. You've got, remember what repentance is, turning allegiance from your sin and yourself, leading your own life, and submitting to the authority of the king, to King Jesus. And then we see, the last time we were in Matthew, in 12, 1 through 14, we saw the the, the heat ramp up because he comes into conflict with the Pharisees over the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a big deal. It's the sign of the Israelite covenant, the Mosaic covenant. It's a big deal. And the Pharisees made up all these extra rules for keeping the Sabbath. And Jesus, Jesus and his disciples, they, they, the, the Pharisees challenge him about what they're doing. Jesus is right in his action, and his disciples are right in their action on the Sabbath, but there's been this conflict between the authority of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and we saw the culmination of that in verse 14 of the last time we were together, where the Pharisees love their own authority so much, more than the heart of the law, that's what we were talking about last time, that they're willing to defend themselves to the point of destroying Jesus, of killing him. That's a significant turning point in the plot of Matthew, because now 
now, and we see it increasingly as we keep marching through Matthew, the religious leaders are on a collision course with dealing with Jesus. And Matthew's showing us that because, remember who's Matthew writing to? He's writing to a Jewish Christian audience, and he's trying to show to them, look, you're separating from your Jewish friends and neighbors and relatives, but here's why that happened. Here's why that happened. Because a lot of their Jewish friends and neighbors and relatives are still under Pharisaic Judaism. And why should you break from that? But now what we see today, what's interesting is Jesus' response. Jesus' response to the opposition from the Pharisees. Jesus' opposition to, response to the conflict that just happened. That's why I read that section, as it's clear in our text today, that he's responding to what just happened. But the main idea of the text this morning in Matthew, 15, Matthew 12, 15 through 21 is this. Hope in Jesus as the low-profile servant from Isaiah who brings justice to the world. That's what is there in Matthew. That's what's there for us. Hope in Jesus as the low-profile servant from Isaiah who brings justice to the world. And the way we're going to go about this is... Um, uh, we're going to answer two questions. We're going to answer two questions from the text this morning because these are questions that I believe Matthew's audience would have asked based on how Jesus responds. Now, if you think about it, Jesus is this ultimate Davidic king. He's going to be the one to rule over all the nations of the world from a throne in Jerusalem. So, if you have that kind of authority and the Pharisees just conflicted with you, just opposed you, what would you respond? How would you respond? How would Jesus respond? How would the king of the world respond to something like that? And so we see his response, and it leads to a couple questions. The first question we see in verses 15 through 16 is this, why does Jesus retreat from the Pharisees? Why does Jesus retreat from the Pharisees? Look, look at the text. Now, Jesus, after knowing, that's the idea, he becomes aware. What does he know? He knows what, verse, what, what is going on in verse 14, right? He knows that the Pharisees are plotting to destroy him. It doesn't, the text doesn't say how he comes to know. Maybe it's supernatural knowledge given to him by the Spirit. Maybe it's someone tipped him off, right? Uh, you do know the Pharisees are plotting to destroy you, right? Either way, Jesus becomes aware of this, and that awareness, that knowledge leads him to his next action, which is what? He withdrew from there. Now, this word for withdraw, it's used multiple times in the gospel. It's used uh, four times, at least, I think, in um, Matthew 2. Remember Matthew 2, when Jesus is born, and there's the wise men, and Herod's seeking to kill the kids, right? This word for withdraw is used when the wise men are threatened, when baby Jesus and his family are threatened, uh, and actually, we're going to see this word for withdraw multiple times um, as we continue to march through Matthew. Here's the first, well, the, it hasn't been used for a while. Now it's being used again, and it'll be used multiple more times in the coming chapters. And the idea is this withdrawal is the kind of withdrawal when you're in danger. Or even more specifically, when kingdom, when kingdom interests are being threatened from outside forces like Herod, or like in this case, the Pharisees, there is a withdrawal, a strategic withdrawal, a retreat. And so Jesus knows the Pharisees are opposing him, 
They're, he knows they're going to seek to destroy him, and so he withdraws from there, which is interesting, right? The king of the world, the rightful heir, is withdrawing. And what does he do? They followed him. Many followed him. doesn't say everyone followed him, but many do. Uh, in some ways, maybe Jesus is withdrawing to peel off and, and expose who's his true followers. He did that before. In earlier chapters, he crossed the lake, and only his true disciples followed him. That could be part of it. Regardless, some of them, some of these crowds follow him, and he heals them all. He heals them all. He does good to them. So he's not done doing miracles, even though he's rebuked people for, I've done all these miracles and you're not repenting. He still does miracles. He's still healing. He's still giving kingdom foretaste. That's what the miracles are all about, right? Jesus showing Here's who I am as king. Here's a foretaste of the kingdom I will bring. And he's still doing good. Doesn't mean that these people who followed him are true disciples. Remember, they're kind of that neutral territory. We've got the religious leaders, the Pharisees and scribes on one end, and we've got the disciples on the other end. Crowd's been kind of neutral in the middle. Where are they going to land? They're still in that territory, but he's still doing good. But notice what he does. Verse 16, and he rebukes them. He reproaches them. That's what this word normally means, is to reproach someone. Now, he's not reproaching them for something they did, but he's going to reproach them for, to prevent them from doing something. He's reproaching them in order that they might not make him manifest. So, Jesus reproaches them. He heals these people, and we've seen him do this before. He doesn't want them to make him known, manifest, public, he doesn't want his identity to go public, which helps us answer or start to answer the question, why does Jesus retreat from the Pharisees? Because he wants to keep a low profile. He wants to keep a low profile. Now, there's a subsequent question to that that we'll answer here in a minute. Why would Jesus want to keep a low profile? But at least initially, we could see this, that he is withdrawing from this conflict to keep a low profile. He doesn't want to become manifest. The Pharisees have already indicated that they believe that Jesus' healing is demonic, as early as chapter 9, verses 32 through 34. And by healing the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath, that just happened. They're, they're, they've chall he's challenged their authority, and they're willing to kill him over it. They're willing to destroy him. And so now Jesus is still healing, and the Pharisees see his healing as demonic, as opposed to them. And so he's doing more healing, and he doesn't want people to make it manifest for two reasons. One, earlier on we see that people don't quite get who Jesus is, right? Jesus isn't just doing healing just to heal people. Yes, he is compassionate, but he's doing his healings for a strategic reason. The healings are out there. Uh, remember how he talked to the disciples, I'm going to make you fishers of men, and then he shows them how to fish, and he's kind of been fishing, so to speak, with the, with the healings. Yeah, he'll attract people with these healings. These are kingdom fortes, but Jesus doesn't ultimately want just a following in the sense of a lot of people, a lot of crowds around him. He wants people who are loyal to him, who swear allegiance to him, 
who abandon their allegiance to sin and self, and who submit to him, who bow the knee to him as king, as master. That's what he wants. And they, he wants them to do it because of the truth, because of who he is. He doesn't want people just attracted because of external goodies, the goodies of the kingdom. It's not that they're not good. They're good, but they're just goodies. He wants what? He wants people's hearts. He wants people's hearts' allegiance. And so at an initial level, Jesus doesn't want to be made manifest because he doesn't want people attracted for the wrong reasons. He wants people attracted by the truth. But even more so, based on the context of the conflict of the Pharisees, all right, I'm healing more. The Pharisees got mad because I healed this guy and opposed their Sabbath interpretation. He's still healing. And he doesn't want to be made manifest because it's just going to inflame the conflict between himself and the religious leadership. Now, don't get me wrong, we are very clear, we can see from Matthew, Jesus is not afraid of conflict, is he? No, he's not afraid of conflict. He's called out the religious leaders already. He's called out his hometown, <laughs> uh, or at least his adopted hometown. He's called out these places where he spent a bunch of time and ministered to, and he's saying, you guys are going to endure more judgment than Sodom if you don't repent, right? That's, 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 uh, that's fiery language. He's not afraid of conflict, but he's not a sort of person that's going to go toe-to-toe with the conflict in the sense that he's going to stand in their... It's not like he's standing in front of the Pharisees and is screaming in their face and saying, how dare you? I'm the rightful king. What are you doing? And then, you know, shouting to the crowds around him, come to me, I'm the, re- I'm the Messiah, I'm the real deal. Don't follow these yokels, follow me. Why? He's not doing that because he's trying to get at, follow me because of the truth, follow me because of who I am. Not the external goodies, not an external conflict. It's clear that throughout Matthew, Jesus doesn't want a following based on the external things that appeal to humans whether healings and miracles or militaristic or charismatic political power, right? That's what the things that humans love. Well, he's the king, but, and he has political power, and he will rule the world, but he doesn't want to gather a following based on those things that naturally appeal to our carnal desires. He desires for people to follow him because of who he is, and what he will do in restoring the heart to bring obedience to Yahweh from the heart. That's how the scripture is presented, right? We, we see God is very interested in the world. He's very interested in physical realities. He created a physical world, didn't he? And he's restoring a physical world. And he wants things like justice in the world. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. He wants those sorts of things. He wants external realities, but not at the expense of internal realities. You see, we see through the Old Testament and through what Jesus does in his mission that if you want to deal with the external, you got to deal with the internal first. So he's not going to just attract a following that's all about the externals without them being attracted because he's the physician of the heart. He's the Messiah who came to save his people from their sins. So this is why Jesus withdraws. He withdraws to keep a low profile. Why? In such a way to 
highlight the truth. In such a way, he's not going to play the Pharisees' game. He's not going to go toe-to-toe with them in a violent conflict. He's not afraid of conflict, but in such a way to highlight the truth. Isn't the natural human opposition, the, the, human, the natural human response to opposition is to fight back, to defend yourself with equal and opposite force, isn't it? Newton's third law, equal and opposite force, well, we do that in our relationships, don't we? Okay, they hit me like this, I'm going to respond with equal and opposite force, maybe a little more force, actually. That's a natural human response, to fight back, to defend yourself with equal and opposite force. Jesus and his followers aren't like that. He has the right, he could do it, but he's not like that. So as you think about the spread of Christianity and what, who we ought to be as Christians, Christians ought to keep a low profile like their master. We're not afraid of conflict, but it has to be the right sort, driven by the right sorts of things. Jesus is still proclaiming the truth. He doesn't stop his message, does he? He doesn't shut up. He's still proclaiming the message. He's still doing good. He does good and proclaims the truth. And we ought to do the same. We, we as Christians ought to declare the truth boldly and forthrightly. But we don't seek a following based on what attracts the world. It's not about us, anyway. It's not about people following us, or we're not trying to win a popularity contest. We're trying to have, do what? We're trying to make disciples. And we ultimately can't make the disciple, right? God uses means of us proclaiming the gospel, but it's the Spirit who makes disciples through those means. But we're not seeking followers of Jesus based on external realities, external goodies. This is part of the problem with some of the seeker church movement, right? We're going to put on a light show. We're going to have great music. Well, yeah, that's what the world wants, so of course you're going to get a crowd, we don't appeal at that level, nor do we fight at the merely an external level. We're fighting for the truth, and so we declare the truth boldly and forthrightly. We don't share the truth. Uh, I dislike the phrase share the truth um, or share the gospel. It's not a big deal. It's not like a huge deal, but there's a reality of what are we called to do to proclaim the truth? Because we have the truth, because we have the scriptures, and we have the gospel, And we have Jesus' example of doing exactly that, boldly and forthrightly proclaiming the truth and doing good. We don't seek a following based on what attracts the world, nor do we fight as the world fights. Christians don't pick fights. They do good, and they speak the truth, and they leave the results to God. That's what we do. This is how Paul frames it. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 4 because it really encapsulates exactly what Jesus is doing and exactly what we're called to do. 2 Corinthians 4. Second Corinthians 4, 1 through 12. Listen to this. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, 
it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. The way God works in the world, the way Jesus was working and showing, and the way Christians work is not by fighting as the world fights, but not by picking fights. God fights through the cross, the way of the cross. This is what Luther talked about in his theology of the cross, that God fights with a message of weakness, a message that looks like it's retreating. And the only explanation for people drawing near to Christ is God's work himself. God gets the glory, and God is dealing with heart realities, not merely external realities. So how are you doing? Are you fighting like the world fights? Are you picking fights like the world picks? Or are you being strategic, even strategically with retreat? strategically retreating for the sake of the gospel. Do you look powerful? Are you quick to defend yourself? Or are you quick to say, okay, I've told the truth to you boldly and forthrightly. I'm trusting God for the results. I still love you. I'm still doing good to you, but I'm going to depend on God to work. That's what Jesus does. So Jesus, to answer that question, why does Jesus retreat from the Pharisees? Well, the first answer is really to keep a low profile, but there's even a deeper reason, which is the second question. You could answer the deeper reason with a a subsequent question, which covers verses 17 through 21, which is this. Why does Jesus want a low-profile ministry, right? If the answer to the first question is, well, he's trying to keep a low profile. He's got a low-profile ministry. Why does Jesus want a low-profile ministry? opposite, and we've talked about some of those realities, but Jesus goes even deeper, and it's profound. Verse 16, he says this, he rebukes them, the people he healed, in order that they might not make him manifest, and then verse 17 has another conjunction that sells, uh, builds on the purpose, so it's another purpose statement. He did it in order to keep a low profile, but why is he keeping a low profile? In order that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Now, we've seen these statements in Matthew many times, haven't we? This idea of fulfillment. Uh, We saw them a lot in the earlier chapters. We haven't seen one for a while, but here we get another one. The idea of fulfillment, um, it's not just direct statements in the Old Testament that are prophesying about Jesus. It's some of that. It's also patterns and things that happen in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills. And what do we mean by fulfill? Actualize. That's maybe a the best word I could have for it, actualize, right? You're, here's a pattern, here's a prophecy. Jesus actualizes that. He makes it a reality in some measure or another. 
So that's what's going on here. But notice what's going on. What is Jesus doing? He's rebuking those, or he's reproaching those, so that they don't make him known or a low profile. But why? To fulfill prophecy. Jesus keeps a low profile to fulfill prophecy. Fulfill a a particular prophecy in the book of Isaiah. And then we get the prophecy. Now, what Matthew quotes here, let me make a couple remarks about this. We're going to go to Isaiah here in a second, because that's what Matthew is quoting. He's quoting Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. This is actually the longest Old Testament quote in the book of Matthew, right here. This is the longest quote. So, Matthew thought it was important because Jesus thought it was important. And to understand this quote and all of what Matthew is bringing about, we're going to spend some time in Isaiah. Isaiah is like one of those books in the Old Testament that like, okay, maybe you don't have all the time in the world to study the Old Testament, uh, but uh, Isaiah is actually one of those books that you should know better and better. It's a complex book. It's a big book. Isaiah is a pretty smart guy. He's a pretty verbose guy. He's very wordy and very, uh, you know, Fluent in his language, um, so it's hard, but the amount of time that the New Testament quotes Isaiah and builds on Isaiah, not just in the Gospels, but in the letters, is amazing. So if you understand the theology of Isaiah and what's going on in Isaiah, you're going to understand your New Testament a lot better. So let me give you um, some helpful notes about Isaiah as we come to it. Just a reminder, so Isaiah is writing about around-ish 700 BC. And what has happened politically is that the northern kingdom of Israel split off from the southern kingdom of Judah because of Solomon's sin and his son's sin. So you got a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. Assyria comes in in 722 BC and wipes out uh, Israel. It's gone. They're taken into exile. During those same Assyrian campaigns, those troops come down south into Judah. They almost capture Jerusalem. And then through a miraculous intervention uh, and through the Hezekiah, the king of Israel's, uh, king of Judah's trust, uh, that, that invading force is wiped out. Okay? But what happens in Isaiah and what's spoken of uh, even to Hezekiah is that you guys are putting your trust in foreign gods and foreign kings. Even Hezekiah, he's a good king, but he puts his trust in Babylon. He says, all right, look at all my stuff, Babylon. We're good allies. And by the end of that, uh, Isaiah says, oh, you're, you're really in trouble now because now Babylon's going to come and take Judah away, which is exactly what happens in 586. 605, it happens like in three waves, but the ultimate one is 586 BC. Now, the question is, Why is Israel and Judah getting punished for all of this? Why are they going into exile? Well, of course we could say sin. That's true. But there's even more to it than that. Isaiah 1 and 2, they show that Israel is doing a lot of external forms correctly, uh, except they're not doing things like, oh, caring for uh, the, the widow and the orphan. They're actually oppressing them and that sort of a thing, right? They're doing some good external forms of the temple, but then they're going out and oppressing widows and orphans. Not a good, rep- not a good uh, witness, <laughs> to say the least. But th- this highlights a reality of how God works. What are the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But they're interrelated. If you don't love your neighbor as yourself, it shows that you don't actually love God. Because if you did love God, then you would love your neighbor as yourself. They're interconnected. 
So here the Israelites are purporting to love God with their external worship, but they're actually not loving their neighbor, so it shows that they don't actually love God. They're unjust. That's a big word in Isaiah and in the prophets in general. They're unjust. They are not practicing social justice. Now, I just introduced the word social justice, so let me talk about it. The Bible does care about social justice. The Bible does care about widows and orphans and right action in the world, but probably not in some of the ways, or definitely not in some of the ways that our world is talking about it. So our world's talking about social justice, and that's great, but it's not defining it in a biblical context and in a biblical way. So that's why you got to be careful when you're walking through the scriptures. Uh, The Bible never deals with social justice, external stuff at the expense of the heart. And Isaiah is doing a both and. It's doing a both and. So this issue is just. God's people are unjust. Israel is being unjust, and he's going to lead them into exile for it. So how Isaiah starts to talk about this and talk about the final restoration of Israel, and not just Israel, but the kingdom and the world, the final kind of vision of the future where everything is right in the world is framed in terms of justice. So let me give you a sample of that. And it's going to lead into our text in Isaiah 42, which is what Matthew was quoting. So that's why we're doing this. Isaiah 2, Isaiah 2, uh, 1 through 4. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days. So now that t- t- tips us off that we're talking about the far future, the final future. Right? That it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, or the Torah, the instruction, and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes before many peoples, And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That is the peace that God has been aiming at. That's the rest that Jesus has been talking about. That's the final vision of it. And how is it framed? That not just Israel, but all the nations are going to come and listen to God from his mountain, from his temple mountain, And they're going to hear his instruction, his law, and they're going to act justly. They're going to act justly. So God's going to bring final justice to the world, to where there's no need for war. It's done. And you see that same refrain and that same picture spoken of multiple times in Isaiah. The next one uh, that we'll stop in at is Isaiah 11. And this is in the context of the promise of the child. Right? Isaiah 9, that we quote at Christmas because it's true that Jesus fulfills that. The, the ultimate Davidic king, to us a child is born, to us a son of ki- is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. That's Isaiah 9, and it's all this focus on the child, the ultimate Davidic king, the one from David's line who will set things right in the world, and we get a portrait of that king in Isaiah 11, what he's going to do, but it's also another take on what we just saw in Isaiah 2. It's the same vision just looked at from a different perspective. So Isaiah 11.1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. So this is speaking of the Messiah. That's 
poetic language speaking of the Messiah. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and bear shall graze, and their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, and of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. What's the portrayal? God's Messiah, who's empowered by the Spirit, is going to bring justice to the world. To such an extent that the peace is where we have things like wolves laying down with lambs and that sort of a thing, right? That's what's going to happen in the final future. But who's going to bring the justice? Who's going to bring the final judgment and bring final equity in the world? Jesus. Well, I mean, I skipped a beat there, right? The Messiah and ultimately Jesus as the Messiah. And so you see that same portrayal of justice in the world as the mission of the Messiah, which leads us right into Isaiah 42. And what happens, just to give you, uh, again, just a sort of a idea of Isaiah, um, Isaiah is kind of broken into two parts, 1 through 39 and then 40 through 66. Uh, by the end of 39, what I said happened with King, uh, King Hezekiah, where he's going to, he's looking to Babylon, so he's out, Babylon's going to come in. By the end of Isaiah 39, it's a foregone conclusion, Babylon's going to come in, take you off into exile. And then what God starts to do in Isaiah 40 is start to portray, I'm going to deal with your exile, Israel, I'm going to rescue you, but I'm going to deal with the issue that caused your exile to begin with, namely, I'm going to deal with sin... Or another way of saying that, I'm going to deal with your injustice. You see, Israel, you're supposed to be the servant nation. You're supposed to be this servant nation that's supposed to speak to the other nations of the world, and you're doing a terrible job of it as a servant nation. So how am I going to fix that? Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 introduces the individual servant. You're a servant nation, but now I'm going to introduce to you the servant. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Uh, you will actually notice... There are some differences in Isaiah 42, 1 through 4 from how I, uh, Matthew is quoting it, and that's intentional. I'll try to explain that. Uh, but let's read Isaiah 42, 1 through 4 now. And actually, I'm going to read a little bit beyond it because that informs some of what Matthew is doing, what Jesus is doing. Isaiah 42, 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. 
Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am Yahweh, I have called you, that's the servant, in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind and to bring out of the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am Yahweh, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to Yahweh a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea, and that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Keter inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountain. Let them give glory to Yahweh and declare his praise in the coastlands. Yahweh goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light and rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame, who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. Now, why did I quote all of that? Because God's going to restore justice to the world through his servant, a.k.a. the Messiah, and the way it's portrayed is God going out like a warrior. God's going to go out a warrior. Why is he, who's he warring against? He's warring against the gods, the idols, because commitment to a false god, like Israel was doing and like the nations normally do, leads you to injustice. So God's going to go out and defeat the gods. He's going to show himself better than all the gods. The gods are really nothing. Only he is God. He's going to do that like a warrior. And in so doing, he's going to establish justice, not only just for Israel, but also for the nations. Now, all of that is coming into Matthew. You will notice some difference in language, one of them uh, talking about victory. It talks about victory, well, because bringing justice to the world is described in terms of God's ultimate victory over the world. You see, God's going to deal with injustice in Isaiah. How is he going to deal with injustice? Well, first, he deals with injustice with his people and at the level of their hearts. By the time you reach Isaiah 53, which if you were here for Good Friday, we read through this, we have the servant suffering in place of his people who are unjust, not just from Israel, but also from the nations, and he suffers in their place so that they can be counted righteous. So he deals with justice at that level. But not only is he going to count them righteous, the servant's not only going to bring justice in terms of counting them righteous, he's going to transform them to be righteous people, to do justice. So there's both position and transformation that is happening. And that is exactly what is going on in Matthew. We've already seen that being developed in Matthew, and we see it developed more here in Matthew 12. So now we have some of these concepts. Let's walk through Matthew's quotation of Isaiah 42. Notice what's happening. Jesus is keeping a low profile in order to show that he is fulfilling Isaiah 42. 
too, which is profound once you understand all of those connections. So what do we see? Verse 18, behold my servant whom I chose. So this is Yahweh, this is God speaking of his servant whom he chose. My beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. Now that should sound familiar because those words were spoken at the baptism, right? At the baptism of Jesus, what happened? The Spirit came upon the Messiah for empowerment, like Isaiah 11 talked about, and like Isaiah 42 talks about. What's that doing? The baptism was marking out, here's, here's the servant, here's the servant who's going to come and bring justice, empowered by the Spirit, here's the Davidic king who's going to do this, and that language of, here's the one I've chosen, here's the one I've been well pleased, that's a past tense. It's God saying, in the past... In eternity past, I am well pleased with this one. Did you notice too, it talks about God's beloved, not God's chosen, like Isaiah talks about. And we talked about that language. That language actually goes back to Genesis 22, where Abraham's going to sacrifice Isaac, your son, your beloved son. Well, that's exactly, the reason that language echoes back is because that's exactly what God does with the suffering servant. In Isaiah 53, he gives his servant as a sacrifice for sin. And that's exactly what Matthew's alluding to as well, that this is the beloved one of God who's going to deal with injustice first by sacrificing by his people. I will, so now the chance changes, it's future, I will put my spirit upon him. We saw that at the baptism. For what end? And justice to the nations he will announce. That's what Jesus is doing. That's Jesus' mission to announce justice to the nations, not just in terms of the external justice, but in terms of internal justice, just like Isaiah is dealing with. Verse 19 starts to pick up on why this is being quoted here. We see the low profileness showing up in verse 19. He will not wrangle, this is the, the servant, he will not wrangle, neither will he cry out, Neither will anyone hear in the wide streets his voice. That's what Jesus is doing, right? He's intentionally keeping a low profile to be like this. Wrangling over words is just like this fight, right? This head-on fight over words or just in general, right? He's not wrangling with the Pharisees. Nor is Jesus going out to the wide streets and just crying out, like, come to me, I'm the Messiah, come gather here. Now, he is the Messiah, and he is showing in a particular way that he is the Messiah, but he's not doing it in an external way to just gather a bunch of people around him. No one is hearing him in the wide ways. He's retreating. He's keeping a low profile. More than that, we see more of the manner of the servant's career. Verse 20, a crushed reed he will not break. Now, reeds are used for two things in the ancient world, measuring sticks and walking sticks. Either way, you break a reed. You know, you've ever seen that reed where it's like broken, but there's still some tendrils that kind of hold the break together? You know what I'm talking about? That's what's being talked about here. It's like a useless thing, right? It'd be very easy to just continue the snap and throw it away or throw it into the fire or something like that. And then we see another picture. In a smoldering wick, he will not quench. How easy is it to just the wick? Really easy. Both of those things, a smoldering wick and a broken reed, they're both useless things. And the servant's saying he's not going to do either of those things. The gentle 
sort of profile until. He's not going to do those things until when? Until he sends out for victory. Remember the language of God being the victor? He's going to, God's going to bring this warrior who's going to bring justice in the world. Until he sends out for victory, justice. So what's the broken, weed, broken reed and the, the, the smoldering wick all about? Well, think about this. Who is unjust in the world? Everyone. Everyone is unjust in the world. You, me, all of us, we're unjust. Why? Because we disobey God and we mistreat our fellow man. We are all unjust. None of us are just. None of us is righteousness, righteous, no, not one. Now, let's think about this for a minute. If the good news and the mission of the servant is that the servant will bring justice and you're unjust, huh, is that good news? Wait a minute, God's going to crush the ones who are unjust. He's going to snap them in half. He's going to extinguish them in eternity because even an offense against a fellow man, even an injustice, even at that level of just my fellow man, I've done an injustice against them. Ultimately, the ultimate offense is not against that fellow person. It's ultimately against God. And any offense against God who is infinitely worthy deserves our worship and obedience is an infinite offense that deserves an infinite punishment and infinite justice in the fires of hell. So if I'm an unjust person and I hear the servant's coming to bring justice, that's scary. Unless you have a gentle and kind judge like the servant who's not going to snap the crushed reed, who's not going to extinguish the wick until what? He brings justice to victory. And we know from Isaiah the way the servant's going to do that, not by initially crushing his opponents, but by rescuing them through substituting in their place, taking the infinite wrath of God in their place, and accounting his own righteousness, like a robe. That's how Isaiah talks about a robe of righteousness being clothed around his people. It's both and, dealing with the sin and clothing the person with the righteousness so that they can be counted as just. And also that he will make them just. And that's exactly what we see from Jesus. Jesus, who's been attracted to Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew? Sinners tax collectors, those who know that they're sinners and they're broken reeds and they're smoldering wicks, and yet they come to Jesus because they know he can heal them. He can substitute for him, them as the servant. They don't have the full picture yet until the cross, but who can substitute for his people dealing with their judgment that they deserve and clothing them, count, accounting them as righteous and then making them righteous. Jesus isn't just about accounting people as righteous. He is about that, right? Matthew one twenty one. he will save his people from their sins. But he's also interested in his people being practically righteous, practicing righteousness. How do we know that? Matthew 5-7, through seven, the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what kingdom righteousness looks like. You're a disciple. Here's what a changed life, and here's what a disciple life looks like. But Jesus, from his ministry even till today, he has not crushed a broken reed. He has not extinguished a smoke, smoldering wick, and that gives hope. 
which is exactly where verse 21 comes in. And in his name, the nations, not just Israel, but the nations will hope. What is biblical hope? Biblical hope is not like wishy-washy hope, like, man, I really wish and hope it would stop raining so I could get on my bike, you know, get outside a little bit. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is an expectation based on God's promises. Here, it's an expectation on the servant. It's an expectation that, yes, he will bring justice to victory. And my hope, or another way to say that, my faith, my trust, is in him. That's what biblical hope is. We can talk about it in terms of repentance, turning your allegiance from sin and self and submitting to the just king. We could talk about it as faith, entrusting yourself to Christ as the one who can substitute for his people in their place, bear the wrath in their place, and give them righteousness. We could also talk in terms of hope. My hope is in Jesus. My hope is in his name. And so Jesus is withdrawing and keeping a low profile to show, yeah, I'm the guy from Isaiah 42. And if you understand that I'm the guy from Isaiah 42, then you better hope in me. Then you better hope in me. Jesus will one day bring about total justice. This is a holistic view of justice that Isaiah and that Matthew were talking about. Jesus will one day bring about justice on this earth, resulting on one hand condemnation for those who are not his people and rescue for those who hope in him. Maybe you're here this morning, and I would be. Maybe you're here this morning. And you're hungering for justice in the world. We, we're probably all in that category, right? We're hungering for justice in the world. We see injustice day and day, day in and day out, and we're hungering for that. Now it's good. If you're hungering for justice in the world, that is good. That is right. That is biblical. But do you see the injustice in your own heart first? Have you dealt with that? An unjust person cannot ultimately bring about perfect justice in the world. This is why we don't, we don't hold to social justice in the sense that our culture is talking about it. Because really what you have is a culture who's unjust, trying to define justice and carry out justice. How well is that going to work? Or even in the church, right? If we focus on justice for people, that's good, right? We should do justice as we have opportunity. But can the church or um, bring about justice in the world? No, because we're still unjust people. We're, we're in process. God is growing us, but we're still unjust in many ways. We are saved, and God is growing us, but we're not there yet. Nor is the church tasked with the mission of bringing justice. That's Jesus' job. Jesus is the ultimately just one who's going to bring justice in the world. So yeah, I'm going to do justice as I have opportunity, but I'm not the one to ultimately deal with that, nor is the church. Jesus is. He's the king who's going to deal with that. You deal with the injustice in your own heart first. God cares about social justice, and we should pursue it, but we cannot ultimately bring it. Jesus alone can do, bring justice to victory in the world. Do you recognize your own sin and injustice in your heart? If not, and you think, well, I'm not an unjust person, I'm just. You're going to experience justice in terms of condemnation from Jesus. Jesus is the judge. Did you know that? Jesus is the judge, and he, you will stand before him. And if you will not come to him as the one who can bring justice to you, count you as just, and then transform you into a just person, you will experience his justice in terms of condemnation. 
Maybe you're on the flip side, though. Maybe you're parentally aware. Yeah, I'm a sinner, and I'm unjust in my own heart. And maybe you kind of get paralyzed. I'm too filthy. I can't come. I'm too dirty to come to Christ. I've been in that boat. The call is, the call is to hope in Jesus. To see him, see him in this text. He's the low-profile servant. He's the patient servant. He's the kind servant. He knows you're filthy, and he wants you to come still so he can deal with you. You can't deal, you, are, uh, you can't deal with your injustice by staying away. That's not just. The only just way to handle that is by going to Jesus and by hoping in him as the suffering servant. He's patient. He's gentle. He's not going to break you as a broken reed or extinguish you as a wick. He wants you to come to him in hope and trust. And then when you do that, you will grow in justice and in righteousness. Are you growing? Not perfectly, but are you growing and living justly and righteously towards God and towards others? Jesus came to bring about transformation in his people to live righteous, just lives towards God and others. We don't have time to go through it, but you hear the call of the servant in Isaiah 55 that based on what he has done, he calls people to come to him. Jesus calling people to come to him in Matthew 11 was an echo of what the servant says in Isaiah 55. And that's the call today. Come to him. Repent. It'll cost you everything. You can't live for yourself anymore. You swear allegiance to him as your master and your Lord and your king but you will find justice for yourself. And ultimately, we hope this and we wait for it expectantly, justice for the world when Jesus comes again. So hope in Jesus as the low-profile servant from Isaiah who brings justice to the world. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the just one. We are unjust. And we don't know what justice looks like, but you do. We thank you that you have counted us as just and righteous based on your death in our place and your righteous life in our place, that you've clothed us with your righteousness if we repent, if we trust you, if we hope in you. And I pray that there would be none today who are not trusting you, not living to you, not swearing allegiance to you. Lord, humble them if they are, if they're stiff-arming you or if they're still away and they're not hearing your gentle and kind call to come. Lord, please grant people to come even today. Grant us as your ambassadors, as your emissaries, as your servants to now go out into the world and proclaim this justice through you, Lord Jesus, to the world. We thank you and we praise you. In Christ's name, amen.